Good morning. I'm glad you guys are all here and brave to the rain. The older I get, the more I act like rain can hurt me. <laughs> it really can't. We're just, I turn into a wimp. Uh, I'm excited to get back into our Hebrews study together. We're in our fifth week, so if you're new or missed a couple, let me give you a recap so you just are caught up with uh, what we're talking about here. Hebrews is a letter, uh, really a sermon, that was written to a group of Jewish Christians in the first century uh, who were paying a high cost for following Jesus. They were finding that as they moved in the direction of Jesus-centered living, it put them in conflict with their culture, and that was painful. And so many of them were actually letting go of their faith in Jesus. And they were reverting back to Judaism or the, uh, the old covenant uh, form of worshiping God with the, uh, the law of Moses and the sacrificial system. They were, they were letting go of Jesus and moving back to that because it felt more familiar and simpler and less painful. And so this letter was written to encourage them to hold on to Jesus. There's, there's nothing better than Jesus. You can't find the life you were created for outside of Christ. That's what the letter was written to remind these people. And so for us, that, that should cause us to lean in because we recognize if we really are moving in the direction of Jesus-centered living in our lives, it will put us in conflict with our culture and it'll be painful at times. There'll, there'll be times when uh, it, it's really difficult to hold on to Jesus or there'll be times when we just get weary and tired and, and it's tempting to let go and, and revert back to a simpler version of our faith that's, that's inadequate and incomplete or even to a false version of faith. And so uh, this letter is for us too. It's a reminder to hold on tight to Jesus, to get a grip on Jesus. So we're gonna pick up in chapter five uh, here in just a moment because uh, if you're reading along with us in Hebrews, uh, you've come across this Melchizedek thing and, and you're like, what's a Melchizedek? And so we wanna talk about that. It's kind of like reading a novel. Actually, I asked in last service, you know, you know what it's like reading a novel and I just got blank stares. So um, let's, maybe it's like watching a movie. I don't, <laughs> maybe it's like watching a movie and then the movie pauses about half, just as you're getting into it and then it just shows you a calculus equation. And you're like, wait, what just happened? Do I have to, do I have to do this math problem? Do I have to solve this? Math problem to go, do I need this to understand the rest of the story? That's kind of like what running into Melchizedek in chapter five does. It's like, what, what? I thought we were talking about Jesus. What just happened? What's a Melchizedek? What do I do with this? And so we wanna take a minute and, and solve this, this equation. It's not math. Don't, if you got excited because we're gonna do math, you're gonna be real disappointed. Um, we're, we're not doing math. I went to a college where you, you didn't actually have to take math. <laughs> so Bible college, if you don't like math, Bible college is for you kids. Um, it's great. We read the book of Numbers. That was about it. So, um, but we're going to try to solve this uh, thing about Melchizedek today, or at least give us some confidence that we understand why it's in here. Because the Hebrews writer says it a lot over the course of about four chapters. It's like, he's really hung up on Melchizedek. We need to understand why. Okay, so let's start in chapter five, verse six. And he says, in another place, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek just drops that in there like we should know, right? And he's talking about Jesus. He's saying that this phrase applies to Jesus. Jesus is a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Well, where did he get that phrase? He didn't make that up. He borrowed it from Psalm 110, verse four. So Psalm 110 is, is a psalm about you know, the, the people of God being priests and kings. And he says, 
Um, Psalm 110, 4 says, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. So the Hebrews writer says, that's about Jesus. Way back then when they were writing the Psalms, they were talking about Jesus as a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. So why even bring this up? Who is Melchizedek? Why bring this into the story at this point? Here's what I think is going on, and this is just Adam's opinion, so don't write this down. But I think that like any good writer, a good writer has to anticipate the questions that the reader is going to have, right? So he's not gonna be there in person to deliver this sermon, so he's anticipating the questions when he says in chapter four, hey, Jesus is your great high priest. He realizes these Jewish Christians are gonna have a question. And their question is gonna be, hang on a second, how can Jesus be a priest? Because we know that you have to be descended from the tribe of Levi to be a priest. And Jesus was not from the tribe of Levi. So their, their question is, you, he can't be a priest. He's not a Levite. And for us, that's kind of weird because we don't trace our ancestry like the Jews did and still do today. It's very important to them even today. Uh, when Sarah and I were in Israel in June, uh, our tour guide was a Jewish Christian named Avi Levi. And Avi is kind of like a short nickname for Abraham. So his, his name was actually Abraham. And Levi is just a different pronunciation of the name Levi. And so he said, I am a descendant of Levi. He knew that 3,500 years after Levi was born. Isn't that amazing? They trace their ancestry very carefully. This is a big deal to the Jews. It always has been. And so they know that you have to be a Levite to be a priest and that Jesus wasn't a Levite. So when he tells him in chapter four, Jesus is your great high priest, he goes, okay, I'm gonna need to explain that. They're gonna wonder how he can be a priest. So let's talk about a different kind of priest. So what he's gonna say to them is, Jesus is a different kind of priest. He's a new kind of priest. Who can we compare him to? Well, there's this person in the Old Testament that no one knows anything about, and we're gonna compare this person to Jesus. So this is Melchizedek. So Melchizedek's story takes place in Genesis chapter 14. This is during the life of Abraham. And Abraham had a nephew named Lot and Lot uh, and Abraham were both very wealthy and had a lot of property. Wealth in that time was not dollars in the bank. It was cows on the hill. That was wealth. So they had a lot of cows on the hill and there weren't enough hills. And so they had to separate. They had to part ways. So Lot went one way, Abraham went another. And Lot ended up getting caught up in a war between a bunch of kings. So there were a bunch of kings around. Every little city had a king. So there were lots of kings. And a bunch of these kings went to war and Lot and his family got caught up in it. They get captured and taken away. And Abraham finds out and he says, I don't think so. Not my family. And he gathers his army. Abraham has an army in his house of 318 men. And they're going to battle against these kings. And because it's Abraham's army, they win. It wasn't even a problem. And they get Lot and his family and all his stuff back. And now they're on their way home. And this is where we pick up with the story in Genesis chapter 14. Verse 18. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God most high. And he blessed Abram saying, blessed be Abram by God most high, creator of heaven and earth. And praise be to God most high, who delivered your enemies into your hand. Then Abram gave him a tenth of everything. That's it. That's all we get about Melchizedek in the Old Testament until you get to Psalm 110. And then that's all you get until you get to Hebrews chapter five. So this is guy, is just, he's just like a blip on the radar of, of the scope of scripture. And, and the Hebrews writer is gonna make a really big deal out of this guy. So why? Why is he gonna make a big deal? Let's 
pick up in chapter 7, verse 1. Let's see what he has to say and see if we can make some sense out of this. Hebrews 7, 1. This Melchizedek was king of Salem and priest of God Most High. He met Abraham returning from the defeat of the kings and blessed him, and Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. First, the name Melchizedek means king of righteousness, then also king of Salem means king of peace. Without father or mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life, resembling the Son of God, he remains a priest forever. So the Hebrews writer is doing something with Scripture that I would caution us about trying to do. So we understand sometimes when the, the way that the New Testament writers interpret Old Testament prophecy, we look at it and we go, how did they get there? How, how did they, that seems, I would never have gotten that. So part of what we understand is they, they knew the Old Testament forward and backward deeply. Also, they were inspired by the Holy Spirit. So unless you know the Old Testament forward and backward deeply and you're inspired by the Holy Spirit, we just need to be careful about doing what the New Testament writers did with, uh, with the Old Testament. So what he's doing here, one of the things he's doing is he, is he is making a point out of something that scripture actually doesn't say. So he's, he's saying, the Bible never says who Melchizedek is descended from. I mean, we get that about a lot of people in the Bible. You read, and, and just whoever you read, it's, it's John the son of Luke and Adam the son of Keith, and that's, that's, who, that's how the Bible describes people, right? But with Melchizedek, he's not listed as the son of anyone, and the Bible doesn't record his death. So these things that the Bible doesn't talk about, the Hebrews writer goes, let's, let's talk about it. Maybe this is a, a, a point that, that we can make that Melchizedek didn't have a beginning or an end, and so that's kind of like Jesus, right? Jesus didn't have a beginning or an end, and so Melchizedek's kind of a priest forever. If he never died, he's still a priest. Jesus died, rose from the dead. He's a priest forever, kind of like Melchizedek. Now, is he saying that he believes that Melchizedek was an immortal being that somehow just plopped into the story of scripture? I don't think so. I don't think that's the point he's trying to make that yes, Melchizedek was immortal. I don't think that really matters to him. It's, it's just, the point is Jesus is. Jesus doesn't have a beginning and an end. Jesus lives forever. And so as our great high priest, we can trust that Jesus lives forever. And that's just a mini lesson on how to and not to interpret Old Testament, okay? <laughs> All right, so that's why he says, he makes a big deal out of Jesus, uh, Melchizedek being without father or mother. So he talks about him being a king. So let's talk about kingship. He says he's the king of righteousness because that's what his name literally means. Uh, Melchizedek means king of righteousness. My name, Adam, has a meaning. It's, it's a Hebrew name. It means human, my parents, real descriptive. Like, we hope, we hope it's a human. Let's just, let's just go with that. If you name it, you have, maybe he will be. Okay, so um, Melchizedek's name literally means king of righteousness. So the Hebrews writer says, this is a big deal. He's a king of righteousness. That's important to have in a king. He's also the king of a town called Salem. As I mentioned, uh, every little city, state, region had a king. And his little region is Salem, um, and the word Salem, uh, you can hear it's closely related to the word shalom, Hebrew word shalom, which means peace, right? So he said, he's, he's the king of Salem. He's the, he's the king of peace. So Melchizedek is the king of righteousness and the king of peace. And his point is, that sounds like Jesus, doesn't it? Jesus is the king of righteousness and the king of peace. Righteousness is about 
having a heart for God's will and God's way, right? We think of righteousness as being morally perfect. That's not really what scripture is trying to get at with the concept of righteousness. It's about having a heart for God's will and God's way. So a lot of people in scripture are referred to as righteous who actually weren't morally perfect, but they had a heart for God's will and God's way. And Jesus, oh, Jesus is, is the king of that, right? He's the king of having a heart for God's will and God's way. And he's also the king of peace. And we describe peace as being in right relationship with God, with yourself, with other people, and with creation. That's peace. That's shalom. I am in right relationship with God, with myself, with others, and with creation. And Jesus is the king of that, right? Is Jesus in right relationship with God, himself, others, and creation? Absolutely. He's the king of peace. And uh, so we need to understand why kingship matters to the Hebrews writer and why it should matter to us. It matters because kings have authority. Kings represent the authority of God on earth. So when the people of Israel were, were forming themselves as a nation, they didn't have a king to start out with, right? Or a queen, in case you're wondering, queens and kings are kind of on our minds. I don't know why we're so interested in the royal family, but we are. Uh, so we have a new king, or we don't, somebody does, um, Never mind. Uh, so kings represent the authority of God on earth. Israel wasn't ever supposed to have a king. God was supposed to be their king. But at some point in their history, they get fed up with being so weird. They're, all the other nations had kings and they didn't have a king. They're like, this makes us weird. We don't like being weird. We, we wanna fit in with all the other nations. Give us a king. So they go to Samuel, their leader at the time, and they say, you gotta give us a king. Samuel goes to God and he says, the people want a king. I guess I've failed. And God said, nope. They're not rejecting you, they're rejecting me, but let's give them a king. And God's vision for the king was to represent his authority, his rule and reign among the people, to build a kingdom that was Jesus-centered, that was God-centered, God-oriented, right? That's what a king was supposed to do. The kings of Israel did not do that very well. In fact, one of the best ones was David, um, and David is not someone you would call a king of righteousness, right? He he had some serious sin issues in his life and he caused a lot of damage and destruction through that. So um, they didn't actually have kings like this that we, they would call a king of righteousness and a king of peace. But Melchizedek was, and the point is, that's who Jesus is. So what does it mean that he, has the, he represents the authority of God on earth? That's, that's who Jesus is, right? Jesus says uh, in Matthew chapter 28, he tells the disciples, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. In other words, I'm the most powerful person on the planet. What does, that, what does that mean for them? That means, well, I guess we should do whatever he says. <laughs> and the next thing he says is, go and make disciples of all nations. Jesus has the authority to interfere with our lives, to tell us where to go and what to do. That's what a king means, right? That's what it means to be a king, that he has the authority. We have to submit to him. We have to recognize him as above us. This is what Abraham does with Melchizedek, right? Abraham recognizes that Melchizedek is superior to him because he is a priest of God most high. And Abraham gives, he, he tithes, he gives away 10% of his stuff to Melchizedek. This is a weird thing to do. This is not, this is like the first time that's mentioned in scripture. It's someone tithing and it's because he recognizes this person as closer to God, as superior to him, as above him, and having authority over him. Um, we, we often think of giving as just, uh, it's a very personal thing and a very private thing, and we don't talk about how much we give, and that's just between me and God. And, and, 
it's if I, you know, if, if we have extra, if I'm feeling generous, or if I really see a need, then I give. No, for Abraham, giving was about acknowledging the authority of God through Melchizedek. And I think for us, that's why we talk about giving as an act of worship. It's, it's not about how, how much or how little you have. It's, it's not about how, if you're feeling generous today. It's about going, God deserves it. Everything I have belongs to him. And, and this portion I'm giving back to say, man, this is yours. And you do with it what you want. It's an act of worship and acknowledging God's authority over us. And that's what Abraham does. And that's how we acknowledge Jesus's authority is we give. We give ourselves. Uh, we give our time, our talent, our, our financial treasures, whatever that looks like. The other side of authority, so the one side is that we have to submit and obey to the person in authority. The other side of authority is that this is the person who is in the best position to bless, protect, and provide for us. That was the king's job. As, as the, the one representing God's rule and reign, and God was for the people, he wanted to bless them, and it was the king's job to bless, protect, and provide for the people. And he was in the best position to do that because of his authority. And so we look at Jesus and say, is he our king? Is he in the best position to bless, protect, and provide for us? Yes, yes, he is. You can take that weight off your shoulders. That's not your job to bless yourself, protect, and provide for yourself. Your king Jesus is in the best position to do that. So our, our best move is just to submit and surrender all to him and say, you do what you want, and I trust that you're gonna bless, protect, and provide for me. That's what it means to be a king. So let's talk about priesthood. We'll circle back to king, kingship in a little bit. Um, let's talk about the priesthood. So Hebrews chapter seven, verse 11. There is a part for you. You remember we do, if you see underlined, read that, but it's coming later. So just uh, be patient, but don't miss it. All right, um, 711, if perfection could have been attained through the Levitical priesthood, and indeed the law given to the people established that priesthood, why was there still a need for another priest to come, one in the order of Melchizedek, not in the order of Aaron? All right, let's take a minute, take a breath and break that down. He's saying, he's posing a question that um, if the Levitical priesthood that Moses established and Aaron was the first high priest. Aaron was Moses' brother. They were both descendants of Levi. And, and Aaron was the first high priest and then all the other priests came after them. If that whole system was good enough, why would we need a new high priest, a different high priest? Well, the obvious answer is it wasn't good enough. It was never adequate for full salvation. That priesthood was never that. And so he's saying this, remember, to Jewish Christians who are letting go of Jesus to go back to this system. And he's reminding them that system was never good enough because Aaron died. He didn't live forever. Aaron sinned. He wasn't righteous and holy. So we need a better priest. We need a priest who, who doesn't die and who doesn't sin. So that's why we need a new priest, not in the order of Aaron, but one in the order of Melchizedek. For verse 12, for when the priesthood is changed, the law must be changed also. He of whom these things are said belonged to a different tribe, and no one from that tribe has ever served at the altar. For it is clear that our Lord descended from Judah, and in regard to that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. So this is again him addressing their concern that how can Jesus be a priest if he's not a Levite? And he says, doesn't matter, he's a different kind of priest. It's okay. Uh, verse 15. And what we have said is even more clear if another priest like Melchizedek appears, one who has become a priest, not on the basis of a regulation as to his ancestry, but on the basis of 
Why does Jesus deserve to be a high priest? Because he demonstrated authority over death. He was crucified, buried, and rose from the dead. And in that moment, he becomes the only person worthy of being a high priest, a king of righteousness and, and of peace, and the great high priest for all human beings. Like Jesus earned that spot through the power of his indestructible life. Friends, if we're looking for something to put our hope in, and, and this Jesus who has an indestructible life and he's, he's, he has a heart for the will and way of God and he, he's the king of peace, he's in right relationship with God himself, with others, with creation, why would we look anywhere else but Jesus? Listen, I know you, you, you people love Jesus. You're, you're here because you believe that, that he is your only hope, but man, sometimes this creeps up on us in ways that we don't expect. And we, if we pay attention, we find ourselves looking, putting our hope in other things besides Jesus. We hope that our career, we hope that retirement is gonna bring us peace. We hope that our grandkids are gonna bring us peace. We hope that our children are gonna bring us peace. We hope that our political party is gonna bring us peace. That's not gonna happen. We, we have all of these other hopes when really the only place we can, thing we can hope in is Jesus. That sounds so Sunday school, doesn't it? So Bible-y. What an what a obvious thing for a preacher to say. It just happens to be true. I didn't invent it. We're, we're reading this person who's saying the same thing 2,000 years ago. So priesthood is about having access to God. That's why it's so awesome that we have a high priest like Jesus because he gives us access to God, to this, the presence of the creator of the universe. That is restricted airspace, okay? You can't, just no one can, not everyone can just go in there. But anyone who is covered by the blood of Jesus has access to the presence of God. Have you ever been able to get into a place because you knew somebody? Um, I... Uh, visited Jay Egan at work. Some of you know Jay, he's a member of our church. And he works for the Energy Control Center uh, for most of the Midwest. So you, this is the place that controls the power, like the energy that goes to uh, several different states. I don't remember how many states, it's a lot. And uh, inside, there's this wall about the size of this back wall here that's covered with screens, LED screens, that show like, here's how much energy this wind farm is producing. And here's what kind of energy Chicago is using right now. They're mostly on coal right now. And they get to call the shots. They get to go, hey, Chicago needs to use solar energy because the sun's out. And so they, they do all of that stuff in there. It looks like NASA in there. I, th I, th I thought we we're going to launch a mission to Mars from that spot. So you can imagine it's very restricted access. Um, if I had tried to go in on my own, I don't even... I, maybe I just would have run into a locked door. Maybe I would have gotten arrested. Who knows? It's somewhere in between there. But I didn't go in on my own. Jay came out and he invited me in and he had the, he had the badge, man. He had the magic badge that could swipe and we could go in any door. And it was awesome. I don't get in there on my own. I only get in there because of Jay. And the presence of God is like that. We don't get in there on our own. There's only one way. We've got to know somebody. We've got to know Jesus. So here's, here's my question. Are you making the most of your access to God? I mean, if Jesus is our high priest, if, if he's the one who, who gets us in, are you making the most of that? Here's, here's what the Hebrews writer says in chapter four, if we back up to that. 
This is a good, you should memorize this one. Or if you're into tattoos, just go ahead and get that zip right on the forearm there. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that to help us in our time of need, we can approach God's throne with confidence, right? The creator of the universe, the the one who orchestrated this whole history-long plan of redemption that resulted in our adoption as his sons and daughters. And we get to just walk right in and say, hey, Papa, are you making the most of that access? If, if you woke up every morning with this awareness that you have access directly to the creator of the universe through Jesus, would that shape your day would, would, would that give you a little more confidence to go into your day knowing God is, God is watching out for me. He's, he's actually with me. He's, he's seeing me. He cares about me. He wants good for me. Are you making the most of your access to the throne where we find grace and mercy in our time of need? So the second question is, we have to go back to kingship. And the second question is, are you submitting to the authority of God? If Jesus is our king, are you submitting to his authority in your life and enjoying the benefits of joyful obedience? Joyful obedience, that's a, that's a key phrase. And it's also, it's, it's like the Super Bowl for, of parenting, right? <laughs> right? As parents, we want our kids to obey, right? And so we teach them from a very early age, uh, do what I say, doesn't matter if you understand, I'm your dad, you have to do it because I'm your dad, right? But man, whenever our kids joyfully obey, not like, kicking and screaming and, and grumpy and fine, whatever, you know, just don't take my phone. Like, but when they joyfully obey, it's like, I'm the greatest parent in the world. Like my kids joyfully obeyed me today. That was, you know, I'm the best, like I'm the best. And that, that's, that's how God, what's what he wants for us and from us is joyful obedience. Not, not just grudgingly kicking and screaming and God, okay, fine, God, have it your way. But, but no, God, I, I trust that your will and way is what's best and I, I obey you joyfully. So this access to God and the authority of King Jesus are two things that, um, you, that cannot be separated, okay? I think we try to do that sometimes. We, sometimes we like the idea of access to God and finding mercy and grace to help us in our time of need. But we're not super interested in God interfering with our lives, how we have chosen to live and the things that we choose to hold on to and the ways that we choose to spend our time and how we choose to think about and talk about people who just rub us the wrong way or mess with our kids or do whatever. Like, is Jesus king? And if so, we submit to that. And what comes along with that is this incredible gift of access to God. But we can't have one without the other. We can't have the access to God without submission to Jesus. We can't just walk in there to receive mercy and grace if we have said no thank you to God's rule over our lives. They don't separate. They, they have to be together. So I, I just want to encourage you, as we, we begin to close here, I, I just want to encourage you to wrestle with these questions. Am, am I making the most of my access to God? Am I, am I going to him often, frequently, 
because I can, because it's just that easy. And am I submitting to his authority over my life in joyful obedience? Some of you are like, stop saying joyful. I'll obey, but I'm not gonna do it joyfully. Oh no, that's where the good stuff is. Joyful obedience. So here's, uh, here's something that I think people try to do sometimes that we, we, better, we better not do. And that is we try to wield God's authority ourselves and tell everyone else how they should live, even people outside the church. I know, I know people who believe that that's what we should do, that the church should be telling everyone how to live and making everyone follow God's way. And here's how we get there. It's an easy path to get there. You think, wouldn't the world be a better place if everyone obeyed God? Wouldn't it? Of course it would. The world would be a better place if everyone obeyed God. And then we go, well, shouldn't we make the world a better place by making everyone obey God? And for some people, that's like, obviously, yes. That's, that's the loving, kind thing to do. Make everyone obey God so the world will be a better place. We need to pause right there and ask, if that is the best way, why isn't God doing that? Why isn't God forcing everyone to obey him? Could he? Yes. But he doesn't. Why? Because forced obedience just kicks love to the curb. And what God wants is a love relationship with humans, not forced obedience. So it's actually not the best thing for Christians to go around telling everyone else to obey God or else. That's forced obedience. And it just leaves love out of the equation, right? So we need to make sure we're not, we need to abdicate that throne. That's not our throne to sit on, telling everyone else outside the church how to live and what they should do and you better obey God and that's not our job. If it was, God would have already done it, right? Also, we need to make sure that we're not trying to control access to God. We're not the gatekeepers of access to God. We're not the ones who stand you know, at the pearly gates going, you're in, you're out, you're in, you're out. Because we would get that wrong, and we do. When Jesus came and he began to announce the kingdom of God was here and available for people, the kind of people Jesus expected to run full head on into those gates were very different from the kinds of people that the culture thought deserved to get into the kingdom. All right, so the culture would say that the super religious and the wealthy are gonna be the people who deserve to get into the kingdom. If the kingdom of God's really here, it's gonna be for the super religious and the wealthy. Jesus said, those people are gonna have the hardest time getting into the kingdom. They've got so much to lose. They've gotta lay down their power. They've gotta lay down their wealth if they're gonna get in, and that's gonna be really hard for them. Jesus said, the people that are gonna run headlong into that gate when it opens up, it's gonna be the poor. It's gonna be the sinners. The people who think, I can't believe he's inviting me. Not the people who think, well, it's about time he invited me. I think we would get that wrong. I think we would make the same mistake the people of Jesus' day did. And we would assume there are certain people who just deserve, they should be farther up the, you know, the list than us. They deserve to get in when really it's the people that, are desperate for hope and can't believe that God would show love to them. Those are the people that are gonna run when he opens the doors. 
So it's not for us to, to grant access. That's Jesus's job. He's gonna do it better than us. For us, the question is, am I submitting to the authority of King Jesus in my life? Is there an area where I've just held on to something and said, you know what, I, I appreciate the forgiveness and, and the mercy and grace, but you can't have this. This is, this is mine, this is for me, and you can't have control over this. Maybe today is the day we let go of that and we submit to his authority. And are you making the most of your access to Jesus, to the throne of grace? Are you, are you running into the throne room and jumping up on the throne and saying, morning, Papa, let's, let's go get this day together. That's what we get to do. So we're gonna close with a word of prayer. Actually, we have a couple baptisms coming up, so I'm not gonna ask you to stand and dismiss. We're gonna um, celebrate some, some new life in Christ through baptism. Um, but we're gonna, we're gonna pray this prayer together. I just, I just want you to kind of sit for a minute and which one of those questions is, is the prayer you need to pray? Am I making the most of my access to God's throne? And am I submitting to the authority of King Jesus in my life? So which one of those do you need to pray and just offer that prayer up as we, as we wrap this up? Father, thank you for um, Jesus. It's just sort of amazing when we think about the incredible gift that comes from knowing him, that we get to walk right into your throne room every single day, multiple times a day, and count on you to care about us. Thank you for that. And God, we also recognize that you have authority over our lives. And that authority comes with your blessing and your protection and your provision, but it requires our obedience. So just remind us, that's what we signed up for when we chose Jesus. And help us just to let go of the things that we've been holding on to. And Father, would you through us then, help us to point other people to your son so that other people can find access to you through Christ other people can find the joyful obedience of being submitted to their king. Would you do this in us and through us? In Christ's name we pray, amen.